Well, let me ask you to turn now in your Bibles or in your bulletins to Proverbs chapter 3, verses 1 to 12. It's our sermon text this morning. I'll give you a second to get there. Let me read that text for us, and then we will think together about what it means and how it applies to us. This is Proverbs 3, 1 to 12. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him. And he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. May our gracious God bless the reading and now the preaching of his word. Well, does your family have any rules? Or did the family that you grew up in have any rules? It seems like most families find that in order to live together and not kill each other, they need to have some good rules. Some families have practical rules to keep things running smoothly, uh, like take your shoes off inside or no soccer tournaments in the living room. Now, most families often operate with moral rules or rules about what's right and wrong, even if they don't really talk about those rules. For example, I think most families operate with the rule, don't lie, or at least don't lie to mom and dad, right? Whether or not your parents ever talked about that rule, my guess is that it got enforced when it needed to be. Sometimes families have rules that aren't really specific penalties and regulations. They're really more like principles or values. So rules like work hard or be kind or love your sister, Love your sisters. That was one of the rules in my house growing up. Uh, Overly restrictive rules can choke the life out of relationships. And no rules can lead to chaos and anarchy. But good rules, good rules given in love, guided by wisdom, good rules are wonderful Good rules teach us to live well. Good rules keep us from hurting ourselves and others. Good rules structure relationships so that they can thrive. And what we find in our sermon text this morning from Proverbs is that as a wise father of his family, 
one of the ways that God loves his children is by giving them good rules. Remember in this section of Proverbs from chapters 1 to 9, we are listening in on a conversation between a wise human father and his young, probably teenage son. And this section of Scripture is designed to teach all of God's people wisdom as we listen in on that conversation. And one of the reasons that listening in on that particular conversation is such a great way to teach us wisdom is because God is the loving Father of everyone who trusts in His Son, Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and you are not a Christian, let me say what Mike said beforehand. We are so delighted that you are here with us. We, we are thrilled that you've come to hear God's Word. We hope you feel very welcome among us. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, let me share some good news with you. One of the most amazing promises in the Bible is that anyone who trusts in God's Son, Jesus Christ, will become God's child. You see, the Bible teaches that when we are born, we are actually not God's beloved children. When we are born, we are born separated from God. In fact, we are born not loving God. We are born angry at God or hostile toward Him. We are born bent on rebelling against Him and breaking His rules. But listen, this is the good news that Christians celebrate at Christmas every year. 2,000 years ago, God sent His beloved Son, Jesus Christ, to become a man, to live a perfect life of obedience to Him, to die as a substitute on the cross, to rise from the dead, so that anyone who would trust in Jesus might become a part of God's family, might be forgiven, and not only forgiven, but adopted. I hope to say more about that later in the sermon, about how to become part of God's family through Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and you are a Christian, brothers and sisters, what a treasure we have in this passage Our Heavenly Father loves us enough to give us good, life-giving, flourishing-promoting rules that are a blessing. So as we study this passage together, I want us to see six rules that God the Father gives to His children. Our passage has 12 verses, and it divides pretty neatly into six sections So each section has a rule. All of the rules are in the odd verses, so 1, 3, 5, etc. And then the reason for those rules are given uh, in the verse that follows. So the even verses have a reason for each rule. So that will structure our time together, Lord willing. Six rules, each with a reason for it. The first rule we find there in verses 1 to 2 is this, treasure godly teaching. That's the first rule, treasure godly teaching. Look with me at verse 1. The father says, My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. If you've been here over the past few weeks, I hope that sounds kind of familiar. Again and again, this wise father in Proverbs, he opens his speeches by saying, Son, listen. Listen carefully and attentively to what I have to say. Here the father urges his son not to forget 
what he says, but instead to have a heart that keeps his Father's commandments. Don't forget, but instead keep. That word translated keep, uh, it can mean to pay attention to. It can mean to care for. It can even mean to guard. Elsewhere, that word keep is used to describe watchmen on active guard duty keeping a city, much like a goalkeeper might guard a goal. It's interesting in this verse, the opposite of forgetting is not having a retentive memory. The opposite of forgetting is not having an impressive recall. The opposite of forgetting is keeping. It's devoting time and attention to something, to God's words, to this father's counsel. This father wants his son to devote time and attention to his commandments. And brothers and sisters, our God wants us to devote time and attention to his words. Why? Well, the reason's there in verse 2. Verse 1, my son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. Verse 2, for length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. The reason that the father wants his son to listen is not so much because the father feels respected when the son listens. It's because he wants good for his son. It is good for the son that he should respect the father. What the father wants here is good and flourishing for his son. The Proverbs here is reminding us of the general truth that treasuring godly and wise teaching, it usually leads to blessing. Specifically, we're told here that it can even lead to long life and to peace. It's very important to recognize that what we have here in Proverbs is a general truth. We find these throughout Proverbs. The Father is not speaking about what happens 100% of the time. That's not how wisdom sayings work. These statements are 100% true as general statements. Let me give you an illustration. Imagine I were to say that exercise contributes to good health. Well, as a general statement, that's 100% true. But imagine someone were to respond to me saying that with, wait, no, my second cousin's uncle was jogging last week and he got hit by a bus. Exercise did not contribute to his health, right? That person would have missed the point, right? It's it's not a statement about what happens in 100% of the cases. It's a statement about generally how reality works. So to be very clear, the the Bible acknowledges and, and Proverbs actually acknowledges that some people who treasure godly teaching don't live long lives. Sometimes the people who treasure godly teaching, their lives are not obviously, at least on the outside, more peaceful than some wicked people's lives. But still, the general truth is that treasuring godly teaching can lead to long life and to peace In its context, long life might have come from deliverance from some of the threats of foolishness that would have led to early death, like the gangsters that want the son to join him in chapter 1. The word in verse 2 that's translated peace, you might know that word. It's the Hebrew word shalom. Shalom often refers to a deep and comprehensive sense of well-being. This is not true 100% of the time, every single moment, 
But Christian, haven't you found that when your heart keeps, when it devotes time and attention to God's word, that the result is peace? Isn't that what you found? The first rule God gives his children in this passage is to treasure godly teaching because it leads to life and peace. You see how that first rule kind of introduces the five that follows. It teaches us how to regard these other five rules. The second rule there in verses three and four, the second rule is show steadfast love. Show steadfast love. Look with me at the first line of verse three. It says, let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Steadfast love and faithfulness. You might know those are the exact words that God uses to describe himself when he reveals himself to Moses in Exodus 34 as he proclaims the name of the Lord. God describes himself there as abounding in steadfast love or loyal, persistent kindness and faithfulness or truthfulness or trustworthiness or dependability. Here it seems the father is telling his son to treat others the way that God treats his people. You, son, show to others the same steadfast love that God shows to his people. Look at the image the father uses. Again, verse 3. He says, let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Today, I have bound around my neck, not a necklace, but a necktie. And as a result, wherever I go, my necktie goes with me. Every interaction that I enter, I bring my necktie with me into that interaction. But you see what the father is telling the son to do? He's saying, wherever you turn, wherever you go, whatever interaction or relationship you enter, let the thing that goes with you, the attitude that goes with you be steadfast love and faithfulness or kindness and convicting for me, dependability. Right? Not niceness and flattery, steadfast love and faithfulness. A friend, let me just ask you, what's your necktie? What's your necktie? What's the attitude that you tend to bring with yourself into most interactions? Right? Some people have the necktie of, look at me, pay attention to me. Right? Every interaction they enter, they seem to bring with them the desire that people should look at and notice and listen to them, right? Some people bring into every interaction the attitude, the necktie of negative criticism. Right? Whatever's going on, I will find something to criticize in this interaction. Right? It's our necktie. We bring it with us wherever we go. Right? Some people bring complaining into every conversation or most conversations that they enter, right? Wherever I go, my circumstances are bad and people are making it worse, right? Christian, God wants our necktie to be steadfast love and faithfulness. The way that God treats us, that's what he wants us to bring into our relationships. 
Not fake kindness, not pretending that everything's fine, not trying to make people happy with you all the time, but steadfast love and faithfulness. And as the father, clearly he doesn't want his son to pretend to show that kind of love, but, but to, to really show it, right? Look at verse 3. He says, write them on the tablet of your heart. Write them on the tablet of your heart, not just around your neck. Make them part of who you are, how you think. Why should we do that? Why should we show steadfast love and faithfulness? Well, many reasons. Probably the most important reason is that it honors God, that we reflect his image when we do that. But look at the reason given there in verse 4. Verse 4 says, So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. All right, the reason for rule number two is that as a general truth, showing steadfast love and faithfulness is good for your relationships. Isn't that interesting? It pleases God and often, not always, but often it wins you favor with people more than if that had been what you were going for. All right, so Proverbs eleven seventeen puts it like this. It says, a man who is kind, or literally a steadfast love man, benefits himself, but a cruel man hurts himself. Do you see how the father wisely wants to motivate the son to keep his rules? Because they're good rules. They're wise rules. They're rules that lead to blessing. Rule number one, treasure godly teaching. Rule number two, show steadfast love. These good rules lead to blessing. Rule number three there in verse five, trust the Lord. Trust the Lord. Look with me at verse five. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Remember in Proverbs, understanding, it refers to perception. It refers to how we see reality. And in Proverbs, understanding is a very good thing. Proverbs wants to give us understanding. It wants to help us see reality clearly. But how we see reality, even when we are wise, is never meant to be the thing that we ultimately trust in. Because even when we are wise, our understanding, our perception is so limited. We are so small and so finite and often so self-interested that our perspective on reality is not always reliable. The way that things seem to us isn't always the way that things really are. But here's the good news. The Lord's understanding is perfect. The Lord's perspective is entirely accurate. So, here's rule number three. When God's perspective... And your perspective, don't align. Trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord, not reluctantly, not half-heartedly, but wholeheartedly with all your heart. Don't lean on, don't depend on, don't count on how things seem to you when it's contrary to how God says things are in his word. Right? When you work the math problem, and you get a different answer than what you find in God's Word. When you find a doctrine that God's Word teaches that seems wrong to you, right? Does God really say that's wrong? 
Or, or is hell really real? Right? Hell? That's serious. That doesn't make sense to me. That seems off. Even before you find the problem in your thinking, trust that there are no problems in God's thinking. Right? That's the rational thing to do. That's not checking your brain at the door. It is eminently rational to believe that the words of the God who made and sustains the universe are more reliable than our understanding. That is understanding to see clearly that he sees more clearly than we do. It is the intellectually honest thing to do to assume that the God who created the world and raised Jesus from the dead is smarter than us. Brothers and sisters, when something in the Bible seems to jar with our understanding, maybe we've misunderstood the Bible, maybe we've misunderstood reality, but we can, we ought to trust in the Lord with all of our hearts. Look at the reason given for trusting in the Lord there in verse 5. It says, in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. The way you live, the way you walk, the path you walk, remember from last week, that flows out of what you believe. And the truth is that you and I will not do a better job than God has done in figuring out the right path to walk, the right and just and straight path. So Proverbs here urges us to trust the Lord, to live before His face in every sphere, deferring to what He says in all our ways. And he will direct our paths. He will guide us in the way that is right and good. Rule number one, treasure godly teaching. Rule number two, show steadfast love. Rule number three, trust the Lord. Rule number four, a lot of overlap between three and four here. Rule number four, fear the Lord. Look there in verse seven. Verse seven says, Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. And turn away from evil. Remember from previous studies in the book of Proverbs, we saw that the fear of the Lord, if you are God's child, it does not mean being terrified of God. The fear of the Lord does not drive God's children away from Him, it drives them toward Him. For God's people, the fear of the Lord, we've said, is humility, awe, reverence, and delight in God that shapes everything we do. And the specific action that goes along with the fear of God in this passage is turning away from evil. If, If we fear God, if our eyes are fixed on God and His glory, if His opinion is the one that matters to us, then we will be habitually turning from what God sees as evil, from what displeases Him. Doing otherwise is called being wise in your own eyes or acting like you're smarter than God in verse 7. And it's, it's a terrible idea. This is so interesting. Look at the consequence of fearing the Lord and turning away from evil there in verse 8. Verse 8 says, It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Again, what we see here is a general truth which we need to interpret in light of the whole Bible. So, Scripture never teaches that all sickness is a direct result of the sick person's sin. That is not in the Bible. 
Nor does Scripture ever teach that if you were just godly enough, you could faith your way, trust your way, pray your way to perfect health. That is not in the Bible. But don't miss the general truth that this verse is pointing out. It's saying that godliness is good for you. That's the general truth here. Godliness is good for you. It's even good for your health. And the reason you should believe that is because God says it here in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. But by the way, just by the way, did you know that there is a substantial body of medical evidence showing that numerous attitudes that the Bible calls sinful are bad for you? Let me give you just one example. According to a 2010 article in the National Library of Medicine, chronic anger which the Bible says is often, most often, almost all the time, sinful. Chronic anger is associated with increased risk of coronary heart disease and type 2 diabetes and many, many other ills. All right, friend, this is not the prosperity gospel. This is not what the quacks on TV are telling you, that if you'll just do the right thing and give them a little money, God will fix everything that's wrong with your body. That's not what's going on here. But But don't miss the general truth that is being taught here. Just hear these verses one more time. God says, Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Friend, the fear of the Lord is good for you. It's good for you. Rule number five. Rule number five is honor the Lord from your wealth. Honor the Lord from your wealth. I got that from the first line of verse 9, which says, Honor the Lord with your wealth. The next line says, And with the first fruits of all your produce. So that word, first fruits, there are two different Old Testament ideas that that word might be referring to. So, first, God's Old Testament people, Israel, lived in an agricultural society. And God had given Israel some very specific laws about what to do with the literal first fruits of their harvests, the first grain, the first literally fruits off the tree. He wanted to offer those to himself in addition to other offerings and tithes that he required of them. You can read about that in Leviticus chapter 23 if you're so inclined. The second thing that that word first fruits might be referring to is to the best of what you have, the cream of the crop, as we might say. Throughout the Bible, that term first fruits, it can refer to the best batch or the choice goods of something. So the command here in Proverbs 3 is, is not just give money, it's to honor the Lord with your money. So there are lots of ways that you can honor the Lord with your money. You can honor the Lord by saving You can honor the Lord by enjoying what he's given you. But the specific way that's being talked about here is very clearly giving your money and possessions away by spending it on the priorities of God's kingdom. So more literally translated, verse 9 says this. It says, honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first fruits of all your produce. You see what difference that preposition makes. It implies that we are taking something out of the whole and doing something specific with it. 
You see, the teaching of the Bible is that everything that we own is God's. We own it because God's given given it to us to steward in a way that pleases him. And one of the ways, not the only way, one of the ways that God wants his children to use the wealth that he has given them is to take from it and to give to others in need and to the priorities of his kingdom. So in the Old Testament, according to the law of Moses, honoring the Lord would have meant giving three different tithes at different times. A tithe just means 10%. So there were three different tithes in the Old Testament. And those three would have totaled about 23% of an Israelite's income, in addition to other free will offerings and gifts of charity on, on top of that. And to be sure, things were very different in those days. Right? We don't live under the law of Moses. The civil government and the church are distinct from one another in a way that they were not for God's people, Israel. So how much money should New Testament believers give? Right? What percentage of their income do New Testament believers need to donate? And to whom? Right? Is there a minimum that Christians should give to their local church? Well, if there were a one-size-fits-all answer to that question, the Bible would tell us. But there isn't. Many Christians have found that giving a tithe or a tenth of their income is a helpful thing to do. I don't think that that's a commanded minimum in the New Testament. And we who live in one of the wealthiest societies in the history of the world, we should certainly not see it as a maximum. When we survey the whole Bible's teaching... It seems like what God wants each of us to do is to decide how to honor him in this area. You, as God's child, get to decide how to honor him with your wealth. He wants us to honor him by regularly and sacrificially giving to his kingdom from the wealth that he's provided for us. Let me give you three examples from the New Testament of people honoring God from their wealth. I spend more time on this because we so rarely talk about it. Example number one from Acts chapter four is Barnabas. In the early days of the church, Barnabas sold a piece of property that he owned, and he gave the money into the charge of the apostles to provide for the needs of other believers. Can you see how that honored the Lord? Barnabas saw a need. He had something. He sold what he had. And he gave what he made to meet the need. Can you see how that says, hey, Jesus and his people are so important. A second example of honoring the Lord in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, the churches of Macedonia. I'm so convicted by the churches of Macedonia. These churches gave money to relieve poor Christians in Jerusalem, even though they themselves were poor. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 2, That in a severe test of affliction, Paul writes, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity. Isn't Isn't that an interesting combination? Abundance of joy, extreme poverty, and a wealth of generosity. Can you see how it honors the Lord? Right, that the Macedonian Christians are saying, hey, having less is fine if Jesus is honored, if I can be a part of his work. Can you see how it honors the Lord by trusting him to provide? 
A third and final example from Hebrews chapter 13. God is honored from the wealth of his people when ordinary Christians practice hospitality and share their things. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 2 says this, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Verse 16 says this, Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Christian, when you buy food and you have people into your home and they eat the food and leave, if you do that to bless God's people, you are honoring him. You are saying that Jesus and those precious to Jesus are worth honoring. They're worth your time. They're worth your service. I'm so encouraged by the hospitality that the saints of Franconia Baptist Church show to one another. Brothers and sisters, it's our privilege to honor our Heavenly Father from our wealth. And the good news is that He's eager to provide for us. That's why we have anything in the first place, because God gave it to us. Look there in verse 10. The Father says, Then your barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats will be bursting with wine. In part, again, this is a general truth. And in part, it's a reference to the specific Old Covenant promises that God would reward the faithfulness of Israel with material prosperity. We heard a little bit of that in Deuteronomy 8. In the church age, in the new covenant, we have the promise that all of our faith-motivated giving will one day be rewarded by Jesus in eternity. If you give money away to kingdom purposes to honor your Father, the Bible doesn't give us a ton of details, but it's not a shame to tell us you will see that investment again. The Bible uses the language of rewards from Jesus on the last day for honoring the Lord with our wealth. Not because we've deserved it, but because Jesus is so generous. And friend, he's richer than you. We also have this assurance from the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians verse, uh, chapter 9. Now listen to how Paul in the New Testament, he copies Proverbs in encouraging generosity by pointing to God's ability and desire to provide. And Paul says this, he says, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Saints, remember, God, your Father, knows what you need. He delights to provide for you, and He's got plenty of money. Rule number five, honor the Lord from your wealth. He does not promise this worldly prosperity for His new covenant people, but He is generous, and He is able to, to provide. Rule number six, finally, receive the Lord's discipline. Receive the Lord's discipline. Look there in verses 11 and 12. They say, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. 
You see, I think if we had only Proverbs chapter 3, verses 1 to 10, if those were the only verses that we had in the Bible, we might assume that the Christian life is one of ease, right? If we're wise and we listen to our Heavenly Father's good rules, then things will go well with us, right? If we exercise, then we'll have good health. Well, there are two problems with that, at least two problems, not to mention the rest of the Bible. The first problem is that we often don't obey God's good rules. We often don't obey them. Second, if all we ever get are peace and barns filled with plenty and excellent health and favor with people, how will we ever learn to love our Father more than life? How will we ever learn to trust God and not ourselves and our stuff? Right? How will we ever show that God's steadfast love, even in the midst of terrible suffering, is better than life? How will we ever be made like God's Son, Jesus? The first five rules speak about the blessings of obedience. They are general truths. This final rule teaches us about how to face adversity or difficulty, whether that difficulty is because of our disobedience or not. Right? Very clearly, these verses address God's reproof or when God brings difficult things into our lives as wise and loving discipline to correct us. But that's not the only kind of suffering that this passage is talking about. Right In our New Testament reading from Hebrews chapter 12, the author to the, to the Hebrews, he applies these verses to cases of suffering that are not a result of sin. Right? God's discipline, it includes all the suffering that he's using to make his people more like Jesus. And that includes all of their suffering. It seems to me that when Christians suffer, and especially when godly Christians with tender consciences suffer, it seems like one of the ideas that most afflicts them is the idea that they might be suffering because God is against them. Something bad happens, and Christians are tempted to fear that God is giving them what they deserve for their past or their present sins. And that idea is unbearable, because what we need when we are suffering is the steadfast love of our Father. We can be tempted to resent God when we suffer, because we feel like He resents us, and that's why we're suffering. But Christian, listen if you are God's child, whatever you are going through, whether it is a result of reproof for sin or just the brokenness of this world that God is using to make you more like Jesus, whatever you are going through, God wants you to know this. Your heavenly Father is for you. He is not pouring out the penalty of your sins on you. He did that to Jesus. God wants you to know that when you are suffering, he loves you. What does the text say? It says that he delights in you. It makes him happy to think about you. Christian, listen, if you are in Christ, what you are going through 
is in your life precisely because your Father delights in you. He wants to make you like Jesus, and that is the best thing that he could possibly want for you. If you want proof that God is not against you when you are suffering, Christian, look at the cross. Look at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. What was happening when Christ died on the cross? Jesus, the perfect son who kept all of God's rules, He showed perfect, steadfast love. He trusted the Lord with his whole heart. He only ever always turned away from evil. He honored the Lord with every penny he ever owned. He never despised God's will for his life, even when it meant his death. God gave that son to die young, to have no peace, to be despised by man and crushed by God, to have his body not healthy but broken, and to die destitute and naked Why? Because Jesus was adopting you. Jesus was taking the penalty that you deserved for your sins, that you might receive what he deserved, Christian. See in the cross of Jesus Christ the measure of God's delight in you. Isaiah 53 says that the Lord was pleased to crush the servant so that we might belong to him. Saints, God knew how bad you would be at keeping his rules, and he gave Jesus to have you anyway. We can trust when we suffer that that God is for us, not against us, that he, even when we are disciplined, delights in us as his children. Let me close with this this morning. If you're here this morning and you are not a Christian, what you need most is not to start keeping God's rules. What you need most is to be adopted into God's family. The fact that we break God's rules is a sign to us of our deeper problem, that outside of Jesus, we have a hostile relationship with God. We are his enemies. And even though we have repeatedly and knowingly broken God's rules, failed to love and honor him, and rebelled against him in shocking mercy, God gave his son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross as a substitute to pay the debt that we owed for our disobedience. Three days later, God raised Jesus, this obedient son, from the dead. He gave him endless years of life and perfect peace. He is the most favored person in all the world. He owns everything. Jesus is alive, and God's promise is that anyone who trusts in him will be forgiven and will be adopted into God's family. That's what we celebrate every year at Christmas. That as Paul puts it in Galatians, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. If you're here this morning and you want to learn more about how to be adopted into God's family, please don't leave here without speaking to one of us about how to receive the free gift of God's Son, Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, let's now pray 
that our Father would continue to help us to walk before him in humility and faith. Our great God, how we thank you for the Lord Jesus. Lord, see what kind of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. Lord, I pray for anyone here today who does not know you as their Father, whose sins have not yet been forgiven through Jesus Christ, that they would turn and trust in your Son for mercy. Lord, I pray for those of us who do know you. Would your Holy Spirit pour out the love of the Father in our hearts? Would he cry from our hearts to you, Abba, Father, so that we might walk in your ways, so that we might trust you, so that we might be made like your good and glorious son, Jesus. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love. Thank you that through the gospel, you delight in us. Be with us now as we take of the Lord's Supper. Through Jesus Christ. Amen.